So welcome to uh, the fifth episode of AM Live. I am really excited to have you all here. Uh, as you know, today is the one year anniversary of the January 6th riots. And so I wanted to do something different today. There'll be a lot of commemorations today and they'll be all sounding uh, a very similar theme. And so I wanted to mark the day by exploring, I think, the um, the undercovered aspects of January 6th. And let me just say first that there are aspects of the conventional narrative that I very much personally agree with. Um, I think Trump's challenge of the election was uh, baseless and reckless. I think January 6th highlighted or underscored the very real problem of white supremacist violence in the US. And I think, um, to the extent that's been covered in the US media, I think that's been done accurately. I have other concerns though about January 6th, uh, the way it's been used by the Democratic Party, similar to Russiagate to basically avoid becoming an actual party that governs and shapes policies that meets people's needs. And instead, just like Russiagate talks incessantly about this one incident, I'm concerned about the way the incident itself has been overblown to be compared to, for example, 9-11 or, or Pearl Harbor, when the only person who was actually killed on that day was Ashley Babbitt, who was a, a Trump supporter. Um, I'm concerned about uh, allegations that have been made that I haven't looked into, but we're going to talk about today, of FBI informants being present on January 6th, which raises the question, for, first of all, did the FBI what kind of visibility did the FBI have about January 6th? And did did that lead to a massive intelligence failure? It also raises the question of were there people provoking the scene to make it to, to provoke violence? And I haven't seen any concrete evidence for that so far, but given the history of the FBI during, for example, the so-called war on terror, how it would essentially manufacture terror plots to entrap innocent uh, Muslim Americans, I think these are fair concerns to raise. There's also been allegations of excessive detention for people at January 6th who did not engage in violence. And um, even if I don't agree with the points of view of the people who took part in the January 6th protest, I think you know either we're all equal or we're not. And so all those concerns are worth addressing. I'm also concerned, you know, just a matter of personal interest, of the uh, backdrop of Russiagate. Because it's, to me, um, you know, hypocritical, to say the least, for Democrats to decry this attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election when they spent the previous four years, I think, trying to do a similar thing, which is challenging the legitimacy of the 2016 election by concocting conspiracy theories about Trump conspiring with Russia and even weaponizing the Justice Department and the intelligence agencies to further that goal. So I see on all sides here uh, a some actual some parallels. And I think until those can be addressed, we're going to stay forever in this polarized moment, which is something I'm really not interested in doing. So in the spirit of dialogue and doing something different, I've invited on today two speakers uh, who have been looking into the undercover side of January 6th, uh, the presence of potential FBI informants, uh, the treatment of protesters, and the conduct of intelligence agencies. We're supposed to, you know, this is the most well-funded surveillance state in the world, but yet they somehow failed to thwart uh, this massive calamity at the Capitol. Um, so I'm going to bring in first, and I have to find him, Darren Beatty who is a former speechwriter in the Trump White House, uh, now is the founder and editor of a new site called Revolver. And he's been doing a series of articles on the presence of potential FBI informants on January 6th and what they're, and raising questions about what their role was. So Darren, I need to find you. I don't see you in the room right now. If uh, you hear this, message me your username on Twitter so I can, so I can add you. Um, and I'm talking to you on Twitter right now. So as I find Darren, why don't I actually, why don't I actually bring in a caller uh, and you can share your thoughts on this January 6th anniversary and then 
when um, when Darren comes in, we will get him to respond. So free Assange, and when you come in and to speak, remember to unmute yourself. What's up, Aaron? How are you, man? How you doing? I'm good. Hey, um, you know, I might have a little... I don't think I have a too different opinion on this as, as you. I, I recall the Nixon-Kissinger moment when they have buses around and, you know, Nixon says to Kissinger, you know, they're going to come in, they're going to come in and storm the White House and get us when there's some protest outside the White House back in, I think, an anti-war protest. Um, I think it's healthy to have the government and, and, uh, and people in the government scared of the population. It makes them act differently. It makes them act better. When they're not scared, they do what they want and they, they, uh, screw us over and they pass NAFTA and they do, do things that are, are, and NAFTA is just one example we could, I don't want to take up too much time by listing off examples, but, um, I, I kind of don't look at one six necessarily as, as having been that bad a thing personally. And, uh, I think the way it's being used is certainly bad by the Democrats. And, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing what this guest has to say in regards to, uh, FBI there, because there's the video of that one guy saying, go in, go in, we're going in, I think from the night before, and we're going in the Capitol tomorrow. And that's on video. He's not been arrested. They know who he is. It's very interesting. It does seem like there was some FBI, uh, um, FBI relations into what happened on one six. And we should figure that out. Um, certainly the intelligence community writ large went after Trump endlessly. The Russiagate stuff came out of the, uh, intel community i mean what was it like 17 uh intelligent intelligence agencies said russia interfered with the election after 2016 something like that some stupid number well they first said it was 17 but then they had to actually acknowledge that the list was actually three and even if you look in the details of that it actually comes down to a couple of uh people working for john brennan at the cia and consulting with people at the fbi and NSA, and even on one key claim, the NSA actually dissented. So it's like one of these typical Russiagate things where it went from all 17 agencies down to three agencies and then even da- then down to basically three people. <laughs> but totally. it's a very typical Russiagate development. It's totally the way things have gone lately. It's very um, – you got to be lighthearted sometimes about these things and laugh because otherwise it's angering and frustrating. Um Anyway, I'll just throw that to you and, and let you kind of respond to And I think it'll be more interesting when this gentleman comes in and, and talks about the FBI stuff. The one last thing I did want to say that's separate from 160 is, is uh, I like seeing you with Katie on Useful Idiots on Monday. And I look forward to seeing Useful Idiots Friday and happy to have you filling in for Matt. I think it's a, I think it's a good fit and I'm excited to watch uh, Useful Idiots with you on there. Um, I'm curious. Well, is it a fill-in or a replacement? It it's a fill-in. It, it, it's a fill-in. Matt Taibbi is writing a book about basically thievery during the pandemic, how you know um, a series of industries basically profited and ripped off people during the pandemic. So to focus on that book, he's, uh, he's taking a leave from Useful Idiots. So I'm just filling in while he's gone. He'll be back in, All right. uh, in due time. And in fact, he's even going to pop back in when he can, even while I'm uh, filling in. And uh, yeah, listen, I'm really excited to do it. It's been really fun so far. It's funny. I was telling Katie, like, I have a chance to actually be more myself on her show and useful idiots than I do on my own show, Pushback, because Pushback is like, <laughs> it's a it's a very serious show. We're talking about war, sanctions, uh, yeah. regime change. You know, it's like it's 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 very very sober. So there's just not much room for I think for me at least I feel like levity. So but useful idiots is like a fun show. There's like segments where we do lighthearted stuff and so it's been uh, it's really fun for me so far and katie's great so uh did I, you I, have I did you have isn't this uh weird or is that terrible this week which one did you have I'm just this week this week i had isn't that terrible
and it okay. drops uh, it drops tomorrow on all platforms. All right. I look yeah. forward to it. Thanks, Aaron, for your time. I appreciate that. And um, and you made a great point, you know, that which is that so far, you know, a year in, none of the supposed ringleaders of this plot have been charged. And as Darren Beatty, who is going to come on soon, and we're in touch, so the he he will be joining us very shortly. As he reports. There was this one guy in particular named Ray Epps who shows up in a lot of videos, you know, um, as the caller said, egging people on. And he was initially on the FBI's most wanted posters. But then uh, after Darren did some reporting on him, uh, you know, identifying his role, he suddenly disappeared from the FBI alerts. And so that's Ray's suspicions about FBI informants. You know, there has been to be confirmed. uh, The New York Times also reported this, that there's at least one FBI informant who was there present on January 6th. And the question is, was there more? And especially in light of the fact that we learned that a large number of the suspects in the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot, the governor of Michigan, uh, a large number of those suspects, I think even the majority, more than half, were FBI informants. And um, for people who follow, who saw the persecution of Muslims in the war on terror, I mean, this kind of stuff is is no surprise. And um, the aspect we want to explore today is, you know, to what extent is that happening now? To what extent is January 6th being used as a pretext to expand the national security state? And uh, what can be done about that, especially when it's 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 framed in such a partisan way that if you express concerns about that, then you're somehow dismissed as a just a MAGA Trump supporter. And the other thing I forgot to mention, which which, you know, speaks to the, the kind of stuff that I focus on, is that there's a certain you know, I was talking before about the hypocrisy of, you know, people who decry January 6th supporting Russiagate, which was essentially a, a a longer, more sophisticated effort to do a very similar thing, which is undermine the legitimacy of the 2016 election. You know, if you think about what was attacked on January 6th or where the riot was, this is the Capitol building. And um, there's a certain... Um, irony that I think gets ignored by all sides of this debate from Republican to Democrat, which is that this is the same capital that, you know, gave a standing ovation to Juan Guaido, who the U.S. government under Trump was trying to install as the president of Venezuela, was trying to wage a coup in Venezuela to overthrow Nicolas Maduro and install their own chosen puppet, Juan Guaido. So to claim that this hall is the seat of democracy when it's actually the base for so many efforts to undermine democracy around the world, to subvert foreign governments, to subvert the will of populations that are not the U.S. population. I've never voted for Trump or Joe Biden to choose their leaders. Uh, it's it's you know, the hypocrisy is just is off the charts. And that's um that's another aspect of the January 6th narrative that I'm um, personally uncomfortable with. And we have Darren in the chat now. So I'm going to bring him on right now. Uh, Darren Beatty, again, is the uh, founder and editor of Revolver, uh, a former speechwriter in the Trump White House. And he has been doing a lot of reporting on the presence of potential FBI informants on January 6th. And a lot of what he's already reported has subsequently been confirmed by other outlets and it's reporting I think is important and even though Darren and I'm sure share different views on many issues um, the facts are the facts and I think it's important if you care about journalism and care about events like January 6th to follow the facts first so Darren let's bring you in uh, thank you for coming on so there's a little mic icon there if you click on that just to unmute yourself um, yeah there you are so thank you for joining us Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So let me just ask you, you know, for someone who's not been following the, you know, the fallout from January 6th closely, what to you are the most important revelations uh, that have come out and, and what concerns do you still have about, about January 6th and, and the way it's discussed in the conventional mainstream narrative? Yeah, well, I'm very uh, proud and pleased that my news outlet, Revolver.News, has essentially shaped the national conversation about 1-6, much to the chagrin, consternation, and real, really scandal of the regime and its associated media outlets. Simply wasn't the case before us that people were talking about 1-6 in relation to the federal government and national security states' long history of conducting very similar types of infiltration operations into 
militia groups and so forth. In fact, I don't know how much time we have or how interested you or your listeners would be, but I think it's relevant to point out that Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, this is not his first rodeo. In fact, he's been around decades ago in the 90s. His portfolio was the domestic extremism, terrorism portfolio, and he's been running the same types of operations. It was in the early 90s when the government really kicked its militia infiltration operations into high gear. And I think a lot of what we see in January 6th is really a resurrection of that same basic playbook, more or less for the same purposes, to advance a specific political agenda, whereby Trump supporters and anyone adjacent to Trump, and really even more broadly, anyone who's a real critic of the regime, is labeled a de facto domestic terrorist, and the full force and weight of the national security apparatus is therefore called upon to silence this alleged political national security threat. So let me ask you to get into some specifics uh, that you've uncovered. You've reported now extensively on a guy named Ray Epps. Uh, Talk to us about who he is and what his role is, what his role was on January 6th. Well, the case of Ray Epps is really interesting. And the advantage with Epps is that there's just extremely compelling video evidence that really does a lot of our work for us. Um, He's the only individual in the mountains of video documentary evidence of 1-6, the only individual explicitly calling for this bizarre mission to go into the Capitol. In fact, there's extensive footage of him on January 5th going to various different groups with different agendas and saying, look, focus on the mission that's going into the Capitol. We need to go into the Capitol. Our enemy is the Capitol, which is a bizarre formulation as the as though people, the true enemy is the kind of neoclassical architecture uh, of the Capitol rather than, you know, anything else. He's very focused on the Capitol. And what's important is this isn't just some one-off. This isn't just some drunk guy who had a weird idea and we never heard from him again. On January 6th, again, we've got video evidence up the wazoo. He is a veritable Where's Waldo figure. He's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. And he's repeatedly telling rally goers, after the rally, we're headed to the Capitol. That's where our problems are. Spread the word. And then sure enough, at 12.53 p.m., while Trump was still speaking and all the rally goers were still listening to Trump, Ray Epps was not at the Trump rally. Ray Epps, who flew to D.C. all the way from Arizona wearing his little Trump hat, was you know so interested in the Trump rally that he just blew it off entirely. He was at the Peace Monument on the Capitol grounds, right by the metal barricades, the site of the first decisive breach. He whispers into an individual's ear, and two seconds later, that same individual conducts the very first decisive breach of the Capitol, and the conditions were laid for the rally to become a riot. And this individual, Ray Epps, although the FBI pretended to be interested in him, they included him as one of the 20 most wanted people in January 6th. They put out a message, an emergency alert to the public saying, we need your help identifying this man. Well, the internet being the remarkable crowdsource research vehicle that it is, identified him within days. Only crickets from the feds. In fact, the only movement the feds made on Ray Epps was a day after a major Revolver.News report indicating FBI involvement in 1-6. The day after that, they quietly scrubbed Ray Epps' name and face from their public database. And since then, the only pronouncement regarding Ray Epps by an FBI official has been to deny knowledge that he even exists. Okay, so I want to just stress that because that to me is the one of the most fascinating parts of what you've reported. So you highlight this guy's role. He goes from being featured prominently on FBI wanted posters to completely being scrubbed. Right? Do I have right. that right? Correct. And so you have you written to the FBI to ask them for comment? Uh, what have they told you? 
I'm not written to ask them for comment. Um, many people have, I'm sure, submitted their own inquiries. The FBI is not given an official comment. You know, what, what's kind of funny, though, is I don't know if this is still the case, but it was the case as, as of a week ago. There's a DC FBI, their official Twitter account has still has Ray Epps as one of the many faces on there. So I guess they didn't get the memo. But he's no longer on the official uh, database. And in light of Revolver's first bombshell comprehensive report on Epps, a couple citizen journalists took it upon themselves to go and confront Epps at his ranch in Arizona. And Epps, uh, you know, he had his rested, resting guilty face, no comment, uh, took his golf cart back into his property and those two citizen journalists, the day after they confronted Epps, the F- FBI agents of the F- Phoenix field office knocked on their door. And they said, is this about Ray Epps? Is this about Ray Epps? They said, Ray Epps, we've never heard of him. These are field agents from the Phoenix office. Ray Epps lives near Phoenix. He's an Arizona resident. He's been there for a long time. He was the president of the major militia group oath keepers their arizona chapter and here we have field agents visiting these journalists who confronted epps the day before saying they have no idea who he is and to my knowledge that's the only kind of semi-official pronouncement that any one representing the fbi has given regarding this mysterious and mysteriously unindicted unsearched unsubpoenaed individual ray epps and What's been established so far in terms of uh, documented instances of FBI informants inside the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, the, the main oh, I mean, for January 6th? It's absolutely extensive. And I think to, to really properly do justice to the context of that question, I have to say a few words about this so-called Michigan kidnapping plot. It's a very interesting plot unto itself. Revolver.news was the first outlet to cover this plot in light of um, what likely happened on January 6th. Before we covered it, the only people who touched it at all was the magazine called Jacobin, which, to their credit, basically suggested that this is very fishy and a likely entrapment operation. Well, it's later come to light that this Michigan plot, which is actually a plot to storm the Michigan state capitol, notwithstanding the common usage of the kidnapping plot, it was actually a plot to storm the Michigan state capitol, It involved one of the three main militia groups imputed to January 6th, that is the three percenters. And now we know for a fact that 12 out of the 26 so-called plotters were either informants or actual agents of the federal government. And now that is a hell of an infiltration ratio, but nothing out of the ordinary. These Fed operations, they never act alone. They're like cockroaches. There's never just one. This was an extreme infiltration rate. And we also uncovered the fact interesting enough that the person who oversaw this Michigan infiltration operation was Stephen D'Antuono, the head of the Detroit field office. The day after the so-called plotters, many of whom turned out to be feds, were arrested, uh, he was promoted by FBI Director Ray to the D.C. field office, where he went on to oversee the January 6th investigation, which is a nice little cherry on Terry on top. So we have that as context as a kind of dry run for one six. We have the New York Times has admitted that there are at least two informants um, on January 6th, one of whom was texting his FBI handler contempt- uh, simultaneously in real time throughout the whole day. Um, Newsweek came out with a story saying that there was a special shoot to kill commando force that was at the Capitol on the basis of some intelligence beforehand of uh, some weapon of mass destruction, which is remarkable that they would, you know, have the gall to use that term again. Um, And so, uh, so yes, we have confirmed instances that they're informants. As for the Proud Boys, the, we know that the head of the Proud Boys, Enrico Tario, has a history of being an informant. We know that for a fact. We know that Joe Biggs, one of the men who led the Proud Boys to that initial Ray Epps breach site, he has openly confessed that he coordinates with the FBI to let them know what's going on. He says, so there's no surprises, but we know he's in com- communication with the feds. And so, um, 
it's really not difficult to piece together um, a extremely plausible narrative for how this went down. The feds knew where the Proud Boys were planning to go. They texted various people of their own who were actually loitering around the peace monument before the Proud Boys even got there. This is all covered extensively in the Revolver.News story. All of these people hanging out at the peace monument before the Proud Boys got there ended up uh, playing decisive roles in cutting down fencing, removing barriers, setting up this trespassing booby trap for the rally goers going to the Capitol. And all of these people covered, unlike the, many of the Proud Boys who have been indicted, these people are unindicted. And so that's sort of, that's my initial answer to, to your question on that. There are many possibilities. It could also have just been that FBI agents were aware of what was happening and they just, there wasn't an attempt to, to stop it rather than they, rather than that they tried to instigate well, that's, you know, that's a possibility and that would be damning in its own right. In fact, the very, the introductory section of the revolver piece that started all really showed video footage of Amy Klobuchar asking, uh, Christopher Ray, FBI director Christopher Ray a question. Actually, not quite a question. She says, don't you just kick yourself? Don't you just wish you had some visibility in advance? to what would happen on January 6th. Don't you just wish you had informants in place other, you know, with the assumption that if he was informed in advance, they'd do something to stop it. Well, now we know from the New York Times that they had two informants at least on the ground texting in real time. We know that just months before the same FBI field office had infiltrated the exact same plot in Michigan, 12 out of 26. We know that uh, there was a van stopped on the 5th full of Trump supporters, uh, alleged Trump supporters with explosives and firearms in this van. The media hasn't covered this. One of the people apprehended in the van happens to be one of the people the next day methodically removing fencing. And so we have all of these things. So it's very hard to believe that that they didn't have any visibility in advance. And if they did and they simply let it happen, I think that's a scandal into its own right. Why would they let it happen? Well, in order to advance the political narratives. But I actually think on the basis of the evidence involved, it's more than that, that it's more than simply letting it happen on purpose for a political agenda, that many of the key people covered in this Revolver.News piece, we have video of all these people who played a decisive role in removing barriers and provoking the crowd and calling for the crowd to go into the Capitol, with bullhorns telling people to fill up the Capitol, these people played an instrumental role in changing the conditions of this event from a rally into a riot. And I think the overwhelming evidence points to these people having some relationship with the federal government. And that's totally in keeping with the entrapment evidence for the Michigan case that was just a couple months earlier, run by the same people for the same purposes. What would you say to people who say, you know, why should we care and, and why should we oppose this? I mean, your side of the aisle, the right wing side of the aisle, the, the MAGA side of the aisle, cheered on the, the government after 9-11 when it rounded up innocent Muslims and, and put them in harsh detention. By the way, ironically, uh, a key official overseeing that was Robert Mueller, who was the then director of the FBI. And under his watch, he was even sued over it. Uh, they were sued for unlawful detention of of innocent Muslims who are rounded it up, who are rounded up and no one seemed to care about them. So how would you respond to that? Well, I mean, if, if it's an individual thing, <coughs> I was never a proponent of that and uh, never a proponent of the war on terror and the various associated abuses. If it's a statement in general terms that, you know, probably a lot of MAGA people voted for Bush. Remember that, Notwithstanding how the Trump presidency actually developed once Trump was in office, a big part of the spirit of the 2016 campaign was not just a typical attack on Democrats or the left, but a repudiation of the power structure more generally, and certainly a repudiation of the Bush war on terror, war on Iraq wing of the Republican Party. And so 
I think we'd have to get more precise about what you know elements of MAGA we're talking about. But I think the larger answer to that is simply that if we want to live in a remotely free type of society, if we want to tell ourselves that we live in something resembling a kind of democracy, we simply can't have a situation where basically the intelligence agencies and the national security apparatus is the final arbiter of political events in the country. And I think it's very dangerous generally to have the intelligence agencies and national security apparatus wield such profound power to the point that it essentially functions as a bottleneck to the political process functioning in the way that we mostly expect, anticipate, and would like it to function. That politics as such, as we see it, is fake and performative unless these security agencies are brought into their proper place and their proper role in our government. Okay, so I was told there was a lot of feedback when I was speaking, so I've just changed my headset, so hopefully this is better. And uh, Darren, do I sound okay to you? Yes, you sound fine to me. Okay, so now I want to bring in uh, our other guest, uh, Julie Kelly, senior writer for American Greatness, and author of a, of a brand new book called January 6th, How Democrats Use the Capitol Protest to Launch a War on Terror Against the Political Right. Julie, welcome. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Darren, again. We just Hello. <laughs> We're like a tag team today. So. Well, thanks for joining us, Julie. And I became familiar with you because during Russiagate, there was this strange uh, occurrence where basically people from my end of the spectrum, the left, found common ground with people otherwise who we otherwise normally wouldn't have normally, I think, when we both called out the ridiculous conspiracy theory that dominated the U.S. for four years, in which, as Darren was just saying, the intelligence agencies were weaponized to undermine an elected president. And I want to ask you about actually how that background informed or, or fueled January 6th, because I think it's it's uh, it's derelict to ignore that and pretend that that is if the background of the Mueller investigation and calling Trump and his supporters Russian agents and, and Russian dupes didn't inf- didn't influence January 6th. But first, I want to ask you about the reporting you've done, because uh, you focused on um, the treatment of protesters, especially those who are not accused of committing any violence, but have nonetheless been subjected to uh, lengthy detention. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about that. Sure. And Aaron, I want to thank you, too, because I think you were very courageous um, uh, on someone sort of on the other side of the political spectrum, who I think you opened a lot of eyes to uh, people on the left about what was happening with Russiagate and what this regime and what the um, security state and FBI is capable of doing. So I want to applaud you for your work on that. Um, So, yes, we do have political prisoners in the United States. These are Americans who have been charged and are being detained, mostly on because they dared to protest the unlawful uh, or rigged election of Joe Biden in November of 2020. The Justice Department has sought pretrial detention for at least 100 defendants right now. There are 83 men who are being incarcerated, denied bail, some coming up on their one-year anniversary in jail as their trials are either moved into the middle of next year, and in some cases, their trial dates have not even been set. And this includes people accused of no violent crime, as you just noted. So I want to say one thing, which is that, you know, so we disagree, Julie, when it comes to the 2020 election. I I think, I don't think, from where I sit, to me, it was a legit election. I don't agree at all with what Trump did. I thought it was very reckless. But what I am concerned about is anybody being unjustly prosecuted and also these concerns about fbi informants that darren and i were just discussing and i'm uh, i'm wondering if you have any uh, further thoughts on that we've been talking about the possibility that fbi informants were not just present at the capitol riots but even um egged them on and i'm wondering you know from the work you've done uh, what you've come across on that front well, I mean, Darren has done such great work on this. He was really ahead of the curve exposing what was happening in the Whitmer kidnapping caper that we now know is concocted and executed by the FBI 
uh, using a variety of informants and then luring people into their traps. And so he's been way ahead of the curve on that. Um, but look, the Newsweek article this week was a bombshell. And what's happening is this drip, drip, drip of information to get ahead of uh, what's going to come out in these trials and what will come out under discovery. And that is the extensive involvement of the FBI. Contrary to what Christopher Ray has said, contrary to what the acting attorney general, Je Jeffrey Rosen, has testified, um, the FBI had elite teams, hostage rescue teams, SWAT teams stationed at Quantico the weekend before January 6th. This was authorized by uh, acting attorney uh, general Jeffrey Rosen. They deployed hundreds of these special forces to the Capitol the morning of January 6th. They were at Capitol grounds. They entered the Capitol building with the first set of protesters who breached the building. But what's interesting is, first of all, this completely flies in the face of what they said, is that they were caught off guard. They didn't have intelligence. They didn't anticipate any of this violence. And, you know, Christopher Ray, um, you know, just doing his aw shucks routine in front of uh, the Senate. Um, so that's not the case. And so now that is getting ahead of the fact that there were hundreds of FBI agents on the ground. We know there were informants run into the Proud Boys. That was confirmed by the New York Times. So this was looks more and more, more evidence pointing to what Darren and I have been writing about and, and reporting that this was an inside operation by the government. This was Russiagate on steroids. When the full truth comes out, it's going to make Russiagate look like child's play. Um, the extent to which this FBI and Justice Department, working with other entities, Capitol Police, D.C. Metro Police, probably Secret Service, other agencies who were there, um, and how they work uh, this whole thing out ahead of time. And it was uh, planned ahead, uh, incited and instigated by uh, the federal government. And that's pretty scary stuff to acknowledge, but that's what it looks like. Are there any individual stories, Julie, that you want that you can share with us that you think best illustrate the uh, unjust treatment of protesters who were there on January 6th? You know, there's so many because you're not just talking about the people who are, have been denied bail, people who have been uh, subject to probation for trespassing charges two years. Uh, you know, people who have been incarcerated now will go to jail for 30, 60, 90 days on parading in the Capitol, class B misdemeanor, which has never happened in any other political protest. But what's really upsetting to me, I think, is this cancel culture going after these so-called insurrectionists. They have lost their jobs. They can't get new jobs. Um, they have been canceled by their friends, by relatives. One man, uh, his, his church asked him to stop going. Coming to church, he was a distraction. He was charged with four misdemeanors. He committed no violent crime either. Um, so what Joe Biden Christopher Ray, Merrick Garland, and this national news media is doing. This is more destructive gaslighting intended to destroy the lives of people who dared to support Donald Trump um, and defy, you know, the incoming Biden pre presidency. So this has very dangerous consequences, not just for now, but certainly for the future. So let me ask you what to talk about the backdrop of Russiagate. Um, to me, just politically uh from from a partisan point of view for like for democrats um it was always such a huge error and i think a one that would have long-term very damaging consequences for democrats to basically instead of accepting that they lost in 2016 to cling to you know the russiagate conspiracy theories to not just ex explain away their own failures, but to try to basically make Trump an illegitimate president. And instead of trying to reach voters who they lost in 2016, for example, the sizable number of voters who went from voting for Obama to voting for Trump, I don't think that number is insignificant. They clung to uh, the intelligence agencies to try to basically undo the election, essentially, by constraining Trump and investigating his campaign. I'm wondering how that backdrop, the sort of elite contempt that was shown toward Trump voters, instead of trying to listen to their concerns and dismissing everyone as Russian dupes or Russian agents, how that uh, plays into the uh, prelude, the, um, the, the prequel to January 6th and how it influenced it. Darren, let's start with you. 
Um, could you say that again? The last last part kind of cut out. I'm just wondering, me. you know, how RussiaGate helped fuel January 6th. The the anger that was shown among Trump supporters, the uh, decision by Democrats and intelligence agencies to try to undermine Trump's presidency through RussiaGate, which was, you know, was, we all know now was uh, a scam, and how that uh, helped trigger the the anger that we saw on january 6th and and the response of people to the hypocrisy of you know decrying trump's efforts to challenging the election but promoting the preceding four-year effort to challenge trump's election via russiagate yeah that's a good question i i don't have really a great way to gauge how much of the frustration had to do with russiagate versus the election versus sort of just a more imprecise but viscerally felt sense that um, no matter what they do, they they can elect a president into office and they still don't have any power, you know, the, and, and, and the frustration associated with, you know, having a president in office and even before that, having a president in both houses in Congress and basically still not having any discernible power or influence in the country on the things that ultimately matter to them. Uh, and I think this gets back to, you know, the underlying source of all this, which is that the intelligence agencies and national security apparatus serve as a kind of um, a bottleneck for the democratic process functioning in the way that most citizens expect and want it to function. And um, Russiagate is certainly part of that. It's certainly part of the national security state's extended um, response to uh, the Trump phenomenon, to the rise of populism, to Trump's ultimate election. And so in that sense, I would say that the Russiagate is really kind of uh, uh, continuous with um, what I think is a uh, government-led uh, uh, sort of infiltration campaign that was a big part of the story that we now see to be the event of January 6th. So that's what I would say about that. And Julie. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that covering Russiagate and, you know, I think especially for people on the right who don't didn't have the same sort of skepticism about what the FBI or intelligence community was capable of. I mean, we're traditionally big supporters of law enforcement and the FBI. So I think the revelation to see what they were capable of doing, the lies that they told, the fabrications that they came up with, misleading a secret court, uh, misleading the president, go targeting people, trying to destroy their lives, say Mike Flynn, Carter Page, etc., I think was a huge eye-opener. So I think my background with Russiagate and also the lockdowns, which I was opposed to from the very start, even the first 15 days, um, seeing where I thought that this was going and seeing how it was being politicized and weaponized against Trump. And certainly that's what happened in the election. So my reaction to January 6th right away was not what 95% of America people, even influencers on the right thought. All of it looked super sketchy to me. And uh, I think that that was sort of the basis for my reporting. And then hearing what judges were saying in court, what the government was doing, um, I thought was just beyond the pale. And so that, that sort of animated what I've been covering. Okay, let's bring in a caller. Tom, um, you are up and uh, just unmute yourself. How you doing? Um, you know, I remember on, on January 6th watching, you know, I was watching YouTube and watching videos. I, I think I was watching a status coup, some live feed they had. And I, I remember watching um, police spraying huge clouds of tear gas to crowds. And I remember the crowds standing there and the tear gas having zero effect on them, which makes no sense to me because I've, been, I've seen, you know, with gas and how it affects people. Um, there were, I, I believe the whole thing was kabuki theater, and I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but you know the, the the intelligence agencies and their connection with it is you know these they're basically the police for the elite establishment. I mean that's what they do. They promote the elite establishment's agenda always, and I mean from RussiaGate all the way through to this, they they the, the, the whole goal was to make Trump look. I mean, I'm not a Trump fan. I, I never voted for him. I wouldn't vote for him. But it was to make him look, you know, like a deranged lunatic and his supporters are deranged 
domestic terrorists. Now, that was kabuki theater. You know it. I know it. I watch things that just don't make sense. And, I mean, Russiagate was the same way. And it's all because the, the, the establishment and the Clintons, they had such you know, power over the intelligence agencies. And the intelligence agencies, I mean, they're completely corrupt. They go against everything that we stand for in this country. I mean, our elections, everything. We're just being manipulated. And, I, I mean, I, I believe it was total kabuki theater. And they wanted to make Trump look bad because, you know, like they wanted to, Trump was going to maybe free Assange, free Snowden. They didn't want any of that. Thing was a setup. I mean, it. I don't know. That's just the way I feel. It's very frustrating when I watch the whole thing. And I, I, I thought that day it was bullshit. So, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, that was my. That's no, just thank my you, Tom. Thank now. you, uh, Darren and Julie. Any, uh, any comment? <laughs> Go ahead, Darren. Um. Uh, yes. I mean, I. I don't know exactly what the implications of the, the, the speaker's remark in terms of how much of the event was artificial and so forth. But I, you know, as I've said, I, I think the overwhelming weight of evidence, I think any person who looks objectively at the video footage, who reads the revolver.news reports would have to conclude that uh, the most parsimonious and compelling explanation for a lot of the things we see, including the otherwise inexplicable selective non-prosecution of major actors in 1-6, is that key players in January 6 um, remain protected by the federal government on the basis of a prior relationship with the federal government, and that this, in many ways, decisive ways, was an operation of the sort that the government, the federal government, has been conducting conducting for decades and decades and decades now. It's simply nothing new, and so it shouldn't be terribly surprising that the same thing they've been doing for decades is precisely what they did on January 6th. Yeah, I'll, and I'll just follow up on that, too. Another just eye-opener is trusting the FBI, you know, now looking back at everything that's happened over the past few decades, several decades, and just being so much more skeptical about how much has this FBI and this national security state, these people, how much have they really orchestrated that we believed was real? You know, how much theater have they put on over the past, especially 20 years, the war on terror, now that they've turned against Americans in a domestic war on terror? How much of that was real? I mean, that is, and Darren has covered this already at, at Revolver.News. Um, I think that that's something a lot of Americans are waking up to, and it's pretty terrifying to to confront that what this government is capable of. And that's one of the strange dynamics for me, which is, you know, as someone who's politically on the left, unfortunately, um, I've seen many, you know, colleagues and um, you know people who I align with on other issues become sort of seeing they started to see intelligence agencies as allies when historically. These are the same institutions that have waged war on the political left. Um, and I think just basic decency and rights and not just in this country, but around the world. And, but, and now we're in this strange moment where increasingly there's more of a willingness or there's an increasing willingness on the right to challenge, uh, the national security state than there is in some parts of the left. And it's one of the just strange post, post Russia gate developments. It's just right. And if I could just add to that quickly and. Uh, be slightly provocative, I'd have to say that for the most part, uh, for the most part, people on the left who view the intelligence agencies as their allies are correct in that regard. Um, the uh, and, and that's an extension of the fact that generally the system of government, the power structure in the United States, what I call the globalist American empire, is one that blends elements of national security, supremacy, corporate supremacy, and precisely the kind of, for lack of a better term, quote-unquote, woke uh, politics um, that animates and predominates the agenda of much of the left. And that is baked into the power structure and has found a very kind of comfortable place and uh 
uh, in association with these other instruments of power, including the national security apparatus. And so I understand there are elements of the left, uh, maybe that you're associated with that are still genuine critics of the national security state, will still expose what's happening in Syria, will still, you know, critique empire and so forth. But for the most part, in uh, the uh, major institutions of power in the country, including the national security apparatus, have fully embraced the kind of domestic agenda animating many on the left. And so for that reason, I don't think they're necessarily wrong to think of those institutions as their allies one way or another. Well, I will disagree in the sense that I think they've embraced the rhetoric, the performance of uh, what you call wokeness, but I don't think they've embraced the underlying values. I mean, for a great example is the, that CIA ad that came out recently featuring the Latina CIA agent, and it was using all of this, you know, like whatever you want to call it, uh, woke speak, and it was completely um, empty, had no meaning at all whatsoever. And so I think they've totally successfully weaponized that to make them seem to be, you know, uh, progressive and carrying all these things without actually doing any kind of fundamental policy shift towards the real values of the left that, that I at least associate with. But um, we can disagree on that. We have uh, we have two other callers. Let's bring them in. Zach, you are up. And um, when you come in, a reminder to unmute your mic. Hey, guys. Uh, first time using the app. This is really cool. Um, my question was just about um, sort of the foreknowledge potentially leading up to January 6th. Um, there was reports out last year at this time about panic buttons being removed from people's offices like Diana Pesley. I didn't know if there'd been any follow-up on that. Not that I know of. Maybe Darren has some reporting on that. I, I thought that was like another hoax thing that was never materialized or shown to be true. I don't know. Maybe Darren knows. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about that um, either. Yeah, I'm inclined to, I mean, without look, I mean, I, I haven't followed that, but I'm inclined to not believe that just based on how much of a performance was made of January 6th, like <laughs> AOC saying that she, I think she said something like nearly half of the Congress was almost killed. And then she made a big thing about this incident in her office, which turns out to be a police officer trying to actually... Uh, protect Help. her and other lawmakers. So, you know, I, I, I um, <laughs> on this issue, I, I, I'm inclined to uh, side with side with the uh, skepticism of, of of claims like that. Um, well, there was another. There was just to, to the uh, uh, questioner's point. There was another really unusual optic, and that was Michael Byrd. Right after the House uh, recessed, he instructed Congress people who Congressmen who were in the House chamber to look under their seats that there was a full on gas mask. I mean, we're talking not just like a little mask, but with a hood, the whole thing had been put under these seats. And Michael Byrd, the same police officer who 10 minutes later shot and killed Ashley Babbitt, instructed everyone to take the out the gas mask, the gas hoods, put them on, and because the Capitol had been breached, creating those other optics that we saw, which were House members with these huge gas, whatever you would call them, gas hoods on. If I could, just a, a quick remark on foreknowledge. That's just low-hanging, but very important and nutritious fruit. And those gets back <laughs> to Ray Epps. In the case of Ray Epps, we have an individual who the day before is calling very confidently, very explicitly, very forcefully and repeatedly, we need to go into the Capitol. What a bizarre and random idea. And the fact that Ray Epps follows up on this by his ubiquitousness the, the next day, by the fact that he's everywhere and by the fact that he's standing right next to that initial breach site, whispering in someone's ear and two seconds later, that person knocks down the barricade. Also, in the, uh, in the extensive video footage of Epps, we have him talking to another person, telling him to put down his spray. He says, when we go in, you're going to need to put that away. We don't need to get shot. Those are his exact words, using the term when we go in. 
the Capitol itself hadn't been breached at this point. And this is the same person telling an otherwise bewildered crowd on the 5th that we need to go into the Capitol. And so I think that's just caught on video. He's the only person saying that he said it the night before. And this is a guy, unlike the various, you know, grandmas who are, you know, being arrested and so forth. This guy is scot-free, hasn't been searched, hasn't been charged, hasn't even been subpoenaed. So... And that's a very puzzling thing. You have all these supposedly key people not being uh, questioned, not being charged. And that, you know, that that raises such automatic red flags about whether they're FBI informants. Uh, Julie, anything you want to say here or should we bring on the next caller? Uh, no, go ahead. Let's okay. And, and Darren, uh, let me ask you, we're getting a little feedback on your end. So when you're not speaking, I'm going to ask you to, to mute your mic. Yep. Just, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Zach, anything more you want to say? Um, yeah, I was just going to add thank you guys. And uh, the, the report I did read, it was uh, in the Boston Globe. I'm up in Massachusetts, so it was kind of pertaining to us. But um, it was from like January 13th, 2021, if you wanted to check it out. Okay, thank you, Zach. Uh, Nick, you are up. And a reminder when you come in to unmute your microphone. Hello. Uh, Aaron, how's it going? First time, long time. Uh, so, uh, and I'm so sorry, I missed a portion of this, so um, this may have already been covered by an earlier call, but um, one vibe that I was getting is a bit of a conspiratorial with the FBI, which I do buy, but the, the, but the thing that's kind of missing from this discourse that I think is also fascinating is that I see it more as less of a calculated um, way to make the, uh, you know, post-2001 war on terror response, but applied to, you know, people within the country and um, imposing economic sanctions and basically turning it so that this is the the understood uh, collective enemy of the, you know, good and decent within the country and whatnot. But it, it's almost a bit more like burn after reading. Like, you know, people were informed of all of these um, kind of... Uh, uh, messages between people planning to show up to the Capitol that kind of did not actually go about the official response or preparedness for it. And then as the event was happening, uh, people were just kind of deferring to authority and chain of command that like didn't really, A, didn't show up, didn't materialize, didn't know what to do. This thing playing out in real time was kind of a, a lot of uh, just incompetence playing out, nobody actually seriously considering what they would do in the event that this would happen. And uh, the thing that I wanted to ask you, Aaron, and, and I'm so sorry, I'm going to buzz market another podcaster show that I really like. Are you familiar at all with a congressional dish with Jennifer Briney? I'm not. Uh, so it should be in your rotation. I think it's probably the smartest, best uh, political podcast ever. But um, And the reason why I bring it up is because she published a episode in July, um, episode 236, January 6th, The Capitol Riot, that I think was honestly the definitive take on this. Um, so, And it's also uh, containing a bunch of actual testimony from the actual Capitol police or law enforcement giving an actual pretty detailed play-by-play of what exactly broke down and didn't really happen uh, the way it was supposed to. I mean, it's interesting that this has become this event that so many people are kind of capitalizing on to try and A, legitimize Joe Biden and B, cast any person voicing any criticism whatsoever of his authority or presidency as, you know, the go-to domestic violence extremist. But, um, I, I think another kind of interesting aspect of this is that, you know, el- elites and authorities are also just kind of bumbling and making it up as they go. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, it, it could just be um, what you outlined. I um, I just think it's important to raise the questions. And uh, I think the reporting that Darren and Julie have done have, have raised, you know, serious concerns about the presence of FBI informants. It doesn't mean that they instigated it, but... Uh, it also could just mean that they had knowledge of something happening and, and didn't properly stop it. I mean, the fact is we spend so much money on intelligence agencies and, the, you know, the FBI is supposed to be the world's premier law enforcement agency. But the, look at the failure. I mean, look what happened here. Even if even if informants had no role in stoking this um, and it simply was just a complete 
intelligence failure and a, a failure to protect the capital. That's 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 damning in itself. Um, and I certainly I think um, it's just important to to raise the questions that that have been raised and that have been talked about today. Well, I, I really appreciate just uh, giving me a chance to talk about it. And anyone listening, and you too, Aaron, uh, check out that podcast. I think you'll really love it. In fact, um, it, it is this totally listener-supported thing, and uh, their supporters and listeners are considered their actual like marketing wing of it. So like, I'm just letting you know right now, Jennifer Briney, huge fan of you and Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi. If you've got any influence on the guests and you, useful idiots, she's worth pursuing. She's amazing. Okay, I appreciate the recommendation. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. So uh, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Darren and Julie, I'm going to ask you for any final comments you want to make and how people can find your work. Darren, go first. Well, first of all, thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. I think this has been a great discussion, and I encourage your listeners to check out our work at revolver.news. Read our reports, watch the video, you know, decide for yourself. I think you'll find that a lot of what we're talking to is not only reasonable, but the overwhelmingly most likely explanation for the events and the evidence as we see it. Thanks, Darren. And Julie? Yes, I encourage everyone to check out Darren's reporting, Revolver.News. And then my reporting can be found at American Greatness, Amgrit greatness.com and my new book on January 6th is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Great. Well, Darren Beatty and Julie Kelly, I really appreciate your time today. And I think it's important to have this kind of dialogue uh, across the aisle and, and just, you know, offering an alternative to, to, you know, conventional narratives that people can get everywhere else. And that's why I especially value platforms like Colin, which, which, you know, facilitate that and also make it interactive, which is, um, Always really cool for me. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. Of course, this will be available now to listen back to immediately if you missed any part. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, guys.